What makes some movies better than others? Is it a great script? Is it an amazing score? Probably. It's got something to do with great acting, right? But how do you measure what a great film is? Are you someone that obsesses over technical stuff? Are you someone that goes uh, into a movie hoping to escape the regular life that you live? Um, For me, I've changed, my opinion has changed on this over the years quite a few times. There was a period of time when I got very, very excited about the technical side of filmmaking and how it was all done and how it was put together. Uh, These are back in the days when I decided that this was my career path and I had to dive deep into the techniques, into the skills, into the, the tricks that the masters used to keep me at the edge of my seat. And the only way that I could figure out what was good to me was by going back and remembering the films that I felt the strongest about in examining those movies. If you've been listening to the show for a little while, you know that uh, I went to film school for a short period of time. I actually was introduced to thinking about cinema in a way, in a new way, when I went to just a basic film course in a community college years ago. I never thought that I'd be a director. I always thought I was either going to be in radio or be a comic book artist. And I remember sitting in this class and we watched Citizen Kane, which I had never seen before. And it was in a theater in this class, so it was projected. So I saw Citizen Kane projected and it blew my mind. And then I saw Blade Runner projected. And after watching that, the professor would just have a casual conversation with everybody in the room. What did you think? Did you ever consider, like, what did you think of the wardrobe? And he was asking me a lot of questions that kind of blew my mind open again, where I'm like, right, right, someone is in charge of picking out the clothes for this, and someone is in charge of, of casting this, and someone's writing this, and who's in charge of everything? The director's in charge of everything. And I, I don't know why, man. Maybe it was uh, a different time. Obviously, it was. It was a different time. Maybe we were a bit more... Uh, innocent when it came to how films were made. You know, this is prior to YouTube. We're talking like, what is this, 1997, 98, something like that. So this was prior to YouTube. Uh, and there wasn't a whole lot of like behind the scenes stuff. The only, maybe the only behind the scenes things we'd see was on E. Remember when E first started? Man, I'm dating myself. When E Entertainment first started, that channel was just doing a whole lot of promo stuff for new movies. Um, so it was a it was an eye-opening thing for me. And uh, it changed the way I thought about stuff. And I dug in deep. And the first, really the first few filmmakers that I examined and I studied um, were obviously Ridley Scott, because I was a huge fan of Blade Runner and Alien. Um, but it was Hitchcock. I loved Hitchcock. And when I found the school that I wanted to really train at, and it was, I'm not plugging them, but it was a school in New York. And we went there and we were uh, taught to learn filmmaking with black and white 16 millimeter cameras that didn't shoot sound. We were doing no sync sound. So we were doing everything silent. And I felt like Hitchcock was the perfect guy to study for this because he was a master at the visual language of cinema. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about Hitchcock. I want to go back, talk about the masters of this visual language of cinema. And you guys hear me use this all the time. And some of you may be like, well, Mike, obviously 
movies are visual. We go and we watch them. What is this visual language? What does this mean? I'm talking about all those subtle tricks and techniques that happen behind the scenes that make you feel something. Make you feel something. And it doesn't have to be a suspense movie. It doesn't have to be an action movie. It could be a drama. It could be a romantic comedy. Hell, romantic comedies are loaded with the visual language of cinema. Loaded with techniques to make you fall in love with that leading lady. To have you turn to the hunky guy that walks into that soft light with that strange edge that just makes him feel dreamy, you know? Maybe you're using a little CG to make his skin shine like diamonds. I never got that, by the way. Why <laughs> the fuck are vampire skin shining like diamonds in the sun? Anyway, um, welcome. You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. This is my show. Welcome, guys and girls. Uh, today is, well, it's the beginning of some film school for you all. Uh, I hope you guys uh, listen to what we talk about on today's episode um, and are inspired, are inspired to tell stories with pictures. My favorite thing to do. Uh, I'm trying to line up a few episodes over the next couple of months that really dive into the visual language of cinema. And uh, today's is a great one. It's an exciting one because if I want to talk about Hitchcock, I should probably talk to someone that knows a lot about Hitchcock. Maybe even somebody that has published about Hitchcock, put out a book on Hitchcock, and has done countless hours of studying and understanding how Hitchcock arrived at uh, his level of visual storytelling. So I did a little research and came up with today's guest. Um, and by the way, full disclosure, if you listen to the past few episodes, you've heard that uh, I had a little bit of trouble with Zencaster, so I tried to get today's guest on last week, and we were in the process of recording our interview remotely, so I have to do it through a website that records it on his end, and uh, it started to get exciting, started to get great, and then I'd lose him <laughs> every fucking time. We'd start to lose ourselves in a conversation, because that's, that's the odd thing about doing interviews, right? Because I'm trying to connect with an individual on the other side of the planet sometimes, and I don't use, I try not to use the camera, I try not to use webcam stuff because I feel like it's unnatural. If you're having a real conversation with someone, you're not staring at their face in this angle, and I don't see myself at the same time down in the corner. And I get distracted by myself like we all do, and it's just like, what am I doing? Why am I looking at myself? Fuck that. So I try not to do these without any video stuff. Um, and so, you have to try to connect just on voice alone, which I know when it works, uh, because then you guys love the episode, right? That's what I'm doing with you. You don't, you don't know what's going on right now. I could be sitting here in my underpants. You have no idea. Maybe I am. I probably am. Um, so uh, we tried to do the interview last week, and uh, it kept fucking cutting out, and it got really irritating and aggravating. Um, and I was like, dude, let's just do it. Let's just push it a week. We'll do it next week. Um, so I'm excited. I haven't shot. I haven't interviewed yet. I haven't done it yet. I'm about to talk to him in the next few hours. I'm just banging out the intro before we get in. Um, and I hope everything goes well. I've been doing a bunch of testing this week. We've got a backup plan. So fingers fucking crossed that everything works on today's episode because I'm excited to talk to our guest, Jeffrey Michael Bays. Now, who is Jeffrey Michael Bays? Well, he's a writer. Uh, he's been a contributor to Movie Maker Magazine. Um, he is a producer as well. He actually produced uh, the radio play Not From Space which 
was listed as, and I have to listen to it, which was listed as Time Out Magazine's top five essential radio plays of all time. Of all time. Jesus, man. That's awesome. Um, and uh, he also produced the docuseries Hitch 20, which is a documentary series that is sort of supplemental, I think, to this book um, about Hitchcock. So um, the book that we're going to talk about today, which I'm very excited about, um, and something that I think you guys will all want to jump on, um, is Suspense with a Camera, The Filmmaker's Guide to Hitchcock's Techniques, uh, which is very cool. Let's get into the details of this. Suspense with a Camera brings the secrets of suspense out of the shadows, written for screenwriters and directors by a leading expert on Hitchcock techniques. You will have fresh insights on crafting suspense. These ideas have never been published before and share revelations that go far beyond the cliche knives, corpses, and blondes that associate with many Hitchcock suspense. Uh, suspense is such a basic part of storytelling. It can even be used in romantic comedy. Yeah, of course. Uh, how did Hitchcock manipulate his audience into a state of frenzy? Uh, Hitchcock scholar Jeffrey Michael Bays has made this question his life's mission. Okay, so who else would I talk to about Hitchcock? Uh, and he's here to share his uh, top tips for escalating suspense and leaving your audience begging for more. Um, ideal for filmmakers of any types. These tips will enhance everyone's creative works, uh, shorts, web series, TVs, etc., etc. Okay, so uh, I'm pumped. Uh, like I said, I already started to have a conversation with Jeffrey, and he knows his shit. So we're gonna dig in deep. And I, I know a little bit about Hitchcock. I've spent some time watching his films. And let me ask you this, the listener at home: How many Hitchcock movies have you seen? What is your favorite Hitchcock movie? Do me a favor, drop me a note. I'll do some posts for this episode. You'll see uh, promo posts and ad posts for this episode on my Instagram account. Leave me a note anywhere. On the comments sections, write me a DM. What are your three favorite Hitchcock movies in order? Which ones do you respond to the most? Which ones do you rewatch the most, right? And why do you respond to them? Is it the actor? Is it the suspense? Is it the music? Is it the lack of music? A lot of interesting stuff to talk about. And Hitchcock's been making movies for, or was making movies for years, years. He has so many films um, and his catalog. And the fascinating thing is, is if you go back and watch a lot of the older ones, it's almost like he was doing uh, earlier versions of some of the classics that we do love. So we'll dig into it. Today's episode, get ready to go deep into the world of Alfred Hitchcock, and maybe, 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 just maybe, you'll learn a little bit more about how to craft, how to bring together your very specific way of tackling the visual language of storytelling on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. How do you do? My name is Alfred Hitchcock. And I would like to tell you about our good friends, the birds. That's the damnest thing I ever saw. Birds just don't go around attacking people without no reason. Yes, they attack the children, attack them. What's the matter with all the birds? Birds are not aggressive creatures, miss. They bring beauty into the world. Those gulls attack. Impossible. They came in right down the chimney. Why are they doing things? 
It's the end of the world. Are the birds going to eat us, Mommy? Get yourselves guns and wipe them off the face of the earth. That would hardly be possible. Mitch, don't! The five continents of the world contain more than a hundred billion birds. All at once, the birds were everywhere. Why don't you all go home? Lock your doors and windows. Did you get the windows in the attic? When do you think they'll come? What happens when you run out of wood? I don't know. You don't know? When will you know? When we're all dead? Jeff, how are you, buddy? Thanks for being on the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Uh, very excited to have you back on the show, even though the first time we had a fail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they don't uh, need to know that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, excited to talk about Hitchcock, excited to talk about suspense. Uh, I've been uh, wanting to do a show on the visual storytelling of cinema and Hitchcock for a while, and you're the man to have on. So thank you for being here and let, let's get into it, dude. Sure. I'm excited. Um, so let's start from the beginning for you. How, what, how did you become into, when were you introduced to Hitchcock? When did it start for you? Uh, well, I was a teenager. I think I was about 15 and, um, it's actually, um, my mom forced me to watch a Hitchcock film. Uh, <laughs> And I was not happy about that. I was, I was, you know, as any 15 year old would be. Sure. I was expecting, you know, oh, this is going to be a boring old movie. Yeah, right. Black and white. Ugh. you know, yeah. But it was color. So I was like, yeah, maybe I'll give it a try. <laughs> At least it has color. Yeah. Right, right, right. <laughs> what was, what was the first one? What was the first one you watched? It was Rear Window. Right. I love yeah. that. That's my. That is my favorite Hitchcock movie. Actually, I love that fucking movie. Yeah, it's great. So great. And uh, how did so, you? How, how did you respond yeah. to it? How did you respond to the initial? Well, at first it was boring, so I was like, "Yeah, okay." <laughs> but then I started to realize that I was really getting into it, and there was something about it that had me pulled in. And uh, uh, you know, movies don't usually do that in that kind of a intensity. There was a like a hyper presence in the moment that you felt mm-hmm. um, when they started getting into their conspiracy theories about the neighborhood. Go on, pick it up, Thorwald. Go on, your 
are curious. Don't you wonder if it's your girlfriend calling the one you killed for? Go on, pick it up. Did you get my note? Well, did you get it, Thorwell? Who are you? I'll give you a chance to find out. Meet me in the bar at the Albert Hotel. Do it right away. Why should I? Little business meeting. To settle the estate of your late wife. I... I don't know what you mean. Now come on, quit stalling, Thorwell, or I'll hang up and call the police. Only hundred dollars or so. That's a start. I'm at the Albert now. I'll be looking for you. I said, wow, what is this? Uh, a movie hasn't done this to me before. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, uh, you know, that's what kind of sparked the uh, curiosity I had about what Hitchcock was doing that nobody else was doing. And, uh, yeah. Here we are, 30 years later, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, I could see why. I mean, look, I said it's one of my, I think it's my favorite Hitchcock movie of all time. And I, the stuff that I really love about it, um, besides, you know, the performances, James Stewart kills it. Grace, Grace Kelly's amazing in it. But there, when I watched that movie, it felt so magical. It had like this magical uh, tone and vibe to it that I really couldn't figure out. And it wasn't until years later that I uh, heard or came to understand that Hitchcock built that entire set. So like that whole neighbor's house, outdoor street road, that was all built within a soundstage. Um, They actually had to, from what I understand, they actually had to drill away at the soundstage floor to be able to get enough stories uh, for the neighbor's house, for the set. Yeah, 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 to get the right camera angle, yeah. Oh, so cool. Yeah, amazing set. Yeah, it looks so real. Especially the street uh, that you see in the background, cars driving by and yeah, people man. walking by. And I think there was like a like a dump truck at one point driving by. I don't know how they did that. <laughs> yeah. Must have been a big studio. Yeah, huge, huge. And then this, you know, being a guy that has spent years lighting things, there there's something interesting about uh, you know working with the sun and working with stage lighting and and the sun ultimately that light spills everywhere and splashes everywhere and it's always infecting everything else and it's really hard to sort of control sunlight and you embrace it especially when you're outside because you oftentimes don't have the ability to control all of it um, but with that set he was lighting everything and so it just felt more sculpted it felt more magical because of that I think if I had to examine it, I think that would probably be why it felt so strange to me, you know? Yeah, yeah, probably. Also that there is no music score. Right, um, right, right. There is music score at the, I think, the opening scene as it as you start to kind of pan around the neighborhood with the camera. But uh, aside from that, no music score. Um, the only music we hear is the, uh, the neighbor playing his uh, piano. piano. Yeah. yeah, it's such a great moment. There was like, wasn't it during like New Year's Eve or something like that? And they had like a party up there. Or there was like a there was like a dinner party, and we heard, um, I think it was like him playing a piano and a bunch of people celebrating. And there th- was also something fascinating about the perspective, like the forced perspective with sound that you would have as uh, our lead, as James Stewart was looking through the binoculars and and moving through the background and it was almost like someone was standing they do it in sports games where they have like those focused microphones and you're just listening in on these different worlds in mm, that yeah in that scape it was pretty awesome man 
movie's so good. Yeah. He's kind of young, isn't he? So one of his best, yeah, for sure. Why do you think he didn't use uh, score in that movie? Well, he often didn't like to use score, uh, especially in his later years. Uh, I think um, The Birds doesn't have music score. Hmm. Uh, he felt that in a tense moment when you have suspense going, uh, and built up that uh, music gets in the way. Uh, it actually takes you out of the moment uh, and into more of a kind of a more thinking space, more emotional kind of a thinking space and not in the, uh, you know, as if you're standing there listening to what everything that is, you know, all the characters can hear. Um, and if the sound has something to do with um, the suspense, like if they're almost getting caught and they have to listen to footsteps or whatever, um, you want to listen to those footsteps. Um, like, for instance, uh, when um, Thorwald is walking up the stairs, mm-hmm. um, if you, and the, 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 the suspense is built from that sound, and if you had music with it, it wouldn't be quite the same. Mm-hmm. Very much so. Yeah. Oh, and the reveal of him. I just remember, it's been a little while since I've seen the movie, but Burn in my mind was like a, either a close-up or a zoom shot because it was Raymond Burr who played the bad mm-hmm. guy, right? And it was like a close-up of his eyes and it, uh, the, he had like this very specific slash lighting across his eyes that uh, were, like scared the hell out of me. <laughs> when I, was yeah. and I saw that. And, yeah. You know, and there were moments, not a time would go by. I used to live in New York City and I would look out through the windows in New York City at the different apartments and and go like, okay, where's Raymond Burr? Who's going to be burying the dog out back? <laughs> yes. I think we've all had those moments. Yeah, man. Yeah. We all had some, some crazy neighbors at one point. Well, I mean, so Hitchcock has been known and, and referenced as the master of suspense. Like, what do you think of the key ingredients to the recipe for suspense for Hitchcock? Well, I think for Hitchcock, um, it's the sense of humor that he had mm-hmm. about the subject matter. Um, everything in his films um, has with it a, a sense of comedy um, and not like jokes, but... Um, you know, there's definitely an irony to all of his films. There's like, a, you know, if you told the story to, you know, just your friend, it would sound like a joke. <laughs> um, especially that's true with a lot of his uh, TV episodes as well. Right. right. Um, there, you know, uh, you know, for instance, um, a man kills his wife, uh, puts the body into the trunk of his car. And so he's driving uh, down the highway with the body in the back of his car. And so he gets pulled over, but the policeman isn't pulling him over because of the murder. It's just because he, you know, he's got a broken taillight uh-huh. on his car. <laughs> so that's where the suspense is from. It has nothing to do with the body. Um, in fact, um, we wonder as the audience is someone going to notice this body, <laughs> but of course they're all completely obsessed with this taillight. And that's, you know, because he does such a good job of leading us. We know more than that character knows. We know more. We, you know, we, we know what's at stake. He does a really good job of really setting the stakes in his films too, right? Yeah. And that, that kind of goes to like the three steps of suspense where you have a secret that you share with the audience mm-hmm. and most of the characters don't know about the secret. So um, as the other characters get closer to finding out, that's where the suspense is. Lovely night, you'll be driving up in good weather. 
I almost wish I were going with you. It might be rather exciting. Driving at night always is. But driving with you and Philip now might have an additional element of uh, suspense. You were right, Philip. Those books were tied clumsily. He's got it. He's got it. Philip. He knows. The secret, we assume, would destroy the whole story, you know. The right. movie would be finished if, if that secret got out. Right, 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 100%. And it's, it's interesting how he's using all of the techniques at his disposal to really play with that and really force that, you know, whether you're talking about, like, camera blocking or positioning or, or uh, you know, acting or talent blocking and toying with that. Um he just seemed, when I used to watch his stuff all the time, he just seemed like he really knew how to take that camera and uh, and make you feel something. Like each one of his camera moves or each one of his angles or his positions, I just felt uh, emotionally connected to them in one way or another, you know? Yeah, that's true. He called that orchestration with the camera. Uh, so just as a composer is... Uh, writing a symphony with all the different instruments and uh, some instruments come in at different times. Uh, you know, the camera shots he would use would come in at specific times to make you feel a certain way. Um, and he really used that as a way to what he called play the audience like an, like an organ, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. like he would, he would push the buttons, you know, the, to make them feel a certain way. Um, and it really was, it started with uh, the camera orchestration, which is uh, using close-ups and also wide shots and mediums and uh, switching between those in certain ways. And then, of course, moving the camera as well, uh, panning through a scene uh, and, uh, you know, a dolly in uh, for emphasis on some sort of emotion yeah. or a, you know, pulling away from something. Uh, to make the situation feel more helpless. Um, it was all orchestrated. It was all planned ahead of time uh, in his storyboards. Right. Um, so that you don't, you know, on a Hitchcock set, you don't shoot coverage. You're not just shooting different options. You're just shooting it one way. It's the way he wants to tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> I've, heard, uh, I've heard from a few folks that one of the reasons why a lot of like he did it and a lot of directors were doing it at that time period uh, was so that the, you know, the studio couldn't take the cut away from them. Like they were specifically shooting it the pretty much the only way it could be edited for it to work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, he may have done that on purpose uh, to avoid, you know, people tinkering with his edit um, because, you know, there's the famous uh, Selznick Hitchcock, uh, you know, feud that was happening in the early 40s um oh i don't know over, what, what was the feud oh well okay so there's a film called rebecca which actually won an academy award for best feature yes um and that was hitchcock's first american film uh david selznick was the producer of it and he was you know one of those kind of uh, controlling producers and hitchcock wasn't used to that um <laughs> <laughs> and so they kind of, you know, they got into a lot of arguments and uh, uh, didn't end up working together for very long. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it, it may be that, you know, his control of the, uh, the edit was uh, partially because of that. 
it's wild um, when you think of because there there are a lot of stories like this. Like um, I think of David Fincher when I think of that. Um, probably for two reasons. I think of David Fincher because I was thinking of David Fincher when we were talking about Rear Window because when he did Panic Room, he essentially did the same thing. He built that giant set of that yeah. place with the street and everything, which obviously he was influenced by Hitchcock for. But then there's also the stories of when Fincher was hired to do Alien 3 and how the producers like made that a miserable, almost ruined his uh, directing career. He almost didn't want to direct feature films after that because of the intense uh, stress that was put on him for Alien 3. And then they ended up ripping that movie from him and then recutting mm. it into something else. Um, it's fascinating how, uh, you know, you look back on, at least as a, as a film director myself, I look back on the greats a lot of time and I go, man, they had it so great. You know, like, look at all these great movies. And, but what, what I'm doing is I'm looking back through their catalog of finished films going, wow, like their life must have been so fantastic. And then you hear that after, I mean, how many movies did Hitchcock do uh, in Europe before he did Rebecca, like over like at least 20 or so, right? Yeah, at least 20, yeah. Yeah, and so then he comes here to the U.S. and he's got a producer that he's battling it out with. It's like, come yeah. on, man. <laughs> <laughs> That's insane, man. Um, so, yeah, fascinating stuff. And Well, because, uh, and just to uh, expand on that, Hitchcock was the greatest director in in the UK at the time. Mm. Um, and so moving to Hollywood was like the next big thing for him. So he was like this huge British film star um, that was more famous than his actors. <laughs> um, and so he kind of stepped into the Hollywood world and uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely wasn't used to that. It, uh, he was nice. also friends with uh, Selznick's brother. So I think uh, there was... The family had already known each other for quite some time. Oh, I see. I see. Fascinating. Yeah. Fascinating. And then he, you know, he did a lot of really, I'm just looking at his IMDb as we talk. He did Rebecca and then he did a lot of great stuff, but he really didn't start doing the stuff that we know him for, or like the general public knows him for, for years and years after that, at least 10 plus years was when Rear Window was like 1954 came out after that. So it's it's fascinating. I wonder I wonder how the Rebecca experience shaped his early career here in the US. Well, maybe that's why you haven't heard of any of his films from the 40s. Because <laughs> <laughs> he did make a lot of films um, and a lot of good films, actually. Yeah. Um, but interestingly, he never won an Academy Award for any of his films uh, for directing, especially, which is, you know, looking back on it is bizarre. <laughs> but, very, uh, very. But yeah. But yeah, it was in the 50s. And I think it was because of his TV show where he would introduce himself uh, to the audience on every episode uh, mm -hmm. that um, kind of solidified his uh, brand in the public eye. believe in ghosts? Of course not. I knew you didn't. Noise is the mortal enemy of good motion picture making and television broadcasting. That is why I hired this particular house. It is deathly quiet. 
once that got started in the 50s, I think that helped his uh, marketing and publicity as well for all of his new releases. Super smart. Look at him branding. Yeah. Like he would be an influencer yeah. today. <laughs> yeah. Well, well he, he started out in advertising originally, so he kind of had that oh, really? um, mindset early on. Yeah. Where, where did he start in advertising? Did he work for an ad agency or... Well, not an ad agency, but he worked for a company that built um, telegraph cable. Oh, um, <laughs> and he was in the marketing department for that company. So advertising, you know, this great new invention of telegraph cable. Huh. Um, and so he would draw magazine articles and uh, or magazine advertisements and things for for them for quite a while before he got into film. Huh. That's fascinating. It's kind of like uh, Ridley Scott, if you think about it that way. Because uh, Ridley was in his 40s, I think, when he started doing feature films. And he had done like thousands of commercials and thousands of advertisements before that. Fascinating. Mm, yeah. yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. No, I always bring these things up because people are continuously asking, like, how do, how do you get in the business? What's the formula to get in the business as a director? And... And, uh, you know, these days I'm always saying like, there is no set rules. There's no formula. You have to try to figure it out, but it's, it seems to always be this way, whether you're, you know, Hitchcock <laughs> working for a phone company doing advertisements, or if, uh, you know, you're Spiel, Steven Spielberg lying your way on to universal lot, uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it seems like everybody's got to do what you got to do to get in, you know? Yeah. Well, Hitchcock was lucky because. Um, a film studio opened up down the street and so he just kind of walked up and started watching and uh, eventually introduced himself and somehow he was so charming that uh, they let him start working for them I don't know uh, he began doing the title designs you know the uh, uh, in the silent films uh, they had to interrupt the scenes to have dialogue on the screen because you right. couldn't hear it right. And, right and they had to have somebody draw those so that's what he did. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I think we briefly mentioned this last time, which no one heard. But it's interesting. <laughs> yes. It's interesting that, uh, you know, he comes from like that silent film era, that time when, uh, you know, filmmaking was restricted. You had to do everything visually. You had to, you know, put up these sometimes hard to get through text uh you know, screens that explain what was happening with the story. It makes a lot of sense knowing that he comes from that because then uh, that second nature that, you know, being forced to tell a story with your lenses, being forced to tell a story with blocking, being forced to tell a story um, with uh, the camera becomes almost a second nature to him. It, it must have been this wild excitement when film started to get sound because that's a whole new tool that you can play with. But it's completely obvious when you look at his movies that his foundation was, you know, doing things visually. And I wonder if that comes from the fact that he was starting around the time of the silent film era. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what all the greats were doing. Um, and using the camera to tell a story is a way to avoid putting the dialogue on the screen because nobody wants to read text on the screen. Yeah, yeah. You know, following a, an actor's uh, eyes as they look at something in the room and then you cut to that thing they're looking at uh, and then you cut back for the reaction. Uh, that is really the basis for all of Hitchcock's visual language. Mm. Um, 
that he used for the rest of his career. As you're learning to make movies today, and we uh, we have such a an interesting amount of, we have so many tools to work with as far as filmmakers are concerned. I remember at one point I was talking to a couple of younger uh, directors and they're like, you know, we're trying to figure out cutaways and we're trying to figure out how to shoot inserts and we're trying to make inserts look interesting. And uh, I was just referencing, I think it was Fincher that was saying this, that anytime you do an insert, anytime you show something, it has to mean something because you're literally directing the audience's perspective to that insert. So make sure it means something, make sure it's shot in a way that means something, which it's fascinating now because we have all these other tools and we have all this stuff that we can lean on for, I almost want to say like cheap emotional interaction, whether it's score or, or something else that we're just crowbarring an emotion with, that back in the days of silent film, because all that was stripped away and it was just sort of a visual element, when you did go to an insert, when you did go to a close-up, it was for a fucking purpose, like it meant something. And it was it was really a visual sentence, um, you know, A, B, C, D. It was a sequence of ideas that would come together to, to form a bigger idea. Mm-hmm. Um, and just randomly putting those things together in the edit makes no sense in that kind of a construction. Mm-hmm. Would you see a lot when you see uh, filmmakers trying to wrap their head around um, editing and wrap their head around storytelling, You'll like you'll look at a rough cut or you'll look at an early film and they're just sort of cutting between stuff. And it's like you're cutting to the wide shot, you're cutting to the close up because you're so excited that you shot those elements. You're like, look how pretty each one of them is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and even there's professional filmmakers. I don't want to drop anybody, but maybe some that make movies about giant robots and shit. But uh, <laughs> even those folks are just cutting between shots because they had set it up and it took so long to do so and it looks so pretty and the flares are really great. Um, but what the fuck does it mean, you know? Yeah, I, I think today there's a sense that you have to cut to keep the audience's attention. Mm-hmm. So just cutting from one shot to the other is just a way of keeping things moving mm-hmm. and not really saying anything with it, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. um, it's just a way to to keep, you know, to avoid stationary shots that go on for <laughs> too long, you know? which people are afraid of today. Filmmakers are afraid of today. I think, I think producers and investors are afraid of those things today. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, and yeah. I think that the difference is that you can be on an engrossing single. You can be on a steady shot or on a tripod if it's engrossing, if, it, if you're using the, that element the correct way. Um, I was going back and watching uh, a bunch of old Toho movies recently and uh, watching like the old, the old school days of uh, using anamorphic to its potential, and having seeing shots that were just and I know Hitchcock did this a lot too, where you have just a shot that's on a tripod and the actors themselves are blocked in a specific way where they're stepping in and out of close up, they're moving in and over, they're moving in and out of over the shoulders, like the actual blocking of itself is all, very almost like play like as far as the performance is concerned. And the camera just ends up being that perspective of the audience sitting and watching uh, a play on stage, which is interesting. Film is really the only storytelling medium that can actually move around in a scene. Yeah. Um, And so if you're going to do that, you should have a reason for it, um, aside from just being interesting. (laughs) Um, Now, Hitchcock... um, 
believed that if you cut away from a shot, you're actually dissipating tension. Mm. Uh, so if you, so you have, there's a trade-off, um, between, you know, holding on to tension and cutting to something new, um, unless you get into the kind of, uh, fast montage editing, like in his shower scene, um, where the tension comes from the editing. Um, but if you, if you have an emotional moment from an actor, um, his, his rule was to always stay on that actor, even if they get up and walk across the room, stay with them in one shot mm. because that's holding on to that emotional reaction and cutting to anything else. Even a wide shot of the same actor is going to dissipate any kind of feeling that you have. And maybe you want that feeling to go away. So then you cut. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that that's a big horror thing, too, where you're you're building that tension like what's around the corner what's down that hallway and then if you are oftentimes you'll see people cut and 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 break that tension to build it again so they break it build it break it build it break it build it build it build it and then uh hopefully it's not a jump scare (laughs) yeah (laughs) you know hopefully it ends up paying off in in an emotional way uh not a cheap way um which is what i love about all my favorite hitchcock movies is that it never feels cheap I don't think I've, and even, it may be dated. You may watch those films today and not be able to connect with the environments or not be able to connect with, uh, you know, the outfits of the wardrobe and stuff, but it doesn't feel like his technique is dated. It actually feels like his technique is pretty current with a lot of stuff. Yeah, I think that's definitely true um, because I think that everything we know about filmmaking and the art of cinema was already figured out by the 1920s. There's really <laughs> nothing new that's been added. Yeah. Uh, well, aside from sound, but you know, it, it was all there. So, you know, so, uh, you know, that language, um, is consistent, uh, throughout the years. I think one thing, and I noticed that too, that when you go back and watch a film of his specifically, you feel like it's happening right now that you're in the moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the key to what he was doing is he, he, he tried really hard to put you in that scene so that you feel like you're sitting there watching it in real time. Shh. All right, children, now quiet, quiet. Miss Daniels would like to see how we conduct ourselves during a fire drill. I would like you to show her how quiet and obedient you can be. Uh, we're going out of school now. I want those of you who live nearby to go directly home. I want the rest of you to go down the hill all the way to the hotel. Now, is that clear? Melanie? I want you to go as quietly as possible. Do not make a sound until I tell you to run. Then run as quickly as you can. Now, does everybody understand? All right, John, you lead the way. And I think that's the key to it. Mm. Yeah. And he would find different ways of doing so. It was never like, okay, here comes the Hitchcock move where you're watching it and you're like, okay, this is what he's doing. This is how he's getting us involved with this. He was coming up with new ways of doing it consistently. And then each of those ways become specifically stamped to that film. Like if you're watching North by Northwest or if you're if you're looking at uh, Rope, for instance, which has its own visual language and Rope. 
Um, it, it's fascinating. It's I, I, that's as I got older and I started to go through the Hitchcock movies. I think that's what I liked about it so much is that I would tune into a specific movie for the language that that movie needed, um, and and really got myself lost in that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What kind of research have you done with like? How do you do your research for your books for this? Are you just digging through other books on Hitchcock and like looking for stories? Like how? Do, where do you get all your research? Well. Um, there's a lot of different ways. The first thing is just to watch the films, and that's that's a lot of work in itself. There's 50-some films and yeah. 20 TV episodes. Um, and the, the big source that I use is actual things that Hitchcock himself has said. Mm -hmm. uh, he did so many interviews throughout the years, especially the, the famous uh, Francois Truffaut interview from yeah. the 60s. Um, yeah. Also, Peter Bogdanovich interview. There's a lot of other interviews like that. There's compilation books of all of his writings and interviews mm -hmm. uh, by Sidney Gottlieb, um, which I highly recommend to anyone that is really into this. Um, it's just a treasure trove of information. <laughs> um, there's three books by Sidney alone, and there's uh, a couple of other books as well. Um, there's one book uh, by Dan Uhler that is like his notes and storyboards and transcripts from his meetings with actors. Oh, wow. Um, just a lot of fascinating stuff in there. Oh, wow. Oh, the meeting with the actors transcripts. That sounds fascinating to me. I totally oh, yeah. Into that. Yeah. Well, there's one with Tippi Hedren um, as they're talking about the birds. And uh, it's just, it's, it's amazing. Do you remember anything from it? Or? Well, uh, one thing that stands out is that you know how in interviews he always, you know, said as a talking point that film is a visual medium and that dialogue means nothing. <laughs> you know, all the stuff we've been talking about. <laughs> um, well, when, you know, when he's talking with his actors, it's all about the dialogue. He's actually coaching the actors on how to emphasize words and when to put the pauses in. So he's, he's being very specific about the rhythm of the dialogue and almost treating dialogue as if it's music. Do you know if he allowed any improv with his actors or was he incredibly controlled over everything with it? Oh, he was controlled, yeah. Every, every glance, every nuance, uh, very controlled. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, and the actors that liked to work with him got used to that. I think a lot of them we're kind of not happy with that, but uh, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he works with Cary Grant a lot and Cary Grant was in the military for quite some time, even after he was an actor, right? Didn't he go into, I think he went into the army after that and became a high ranking person in the army, if I remember correctly. I don't know. Oh, is that right? Yeah, I, I don't know if you've ever heard that, but I, yeah, I think so, I think he did. Um, and that makes sense that he comes out and he works for the general, works for Hitchcock, you know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that you're saying that got him used to following orders yeah probably <laughs> <laughs> yeah that uh, makes sense yeah it's 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 interesting it really is fascinating and you know you look at uh his history and you look at all his films and the films that he did over in, in the uk and, and the films he did here in the u.s when i go back and look at a lot of them i'm, I'm always uh I'm always surprised when I see like the same theme showing up between different movies. It's almost like 
he actually had a dry run session where he was able to do it early on and then he did it again because he really could figure it out. Yeah, I think that's true. I think especially in his British years in the 1920s and 30s, uh, he was really experimenting um, with different ways of doing things. And the stories that stuck with audiences were the suspense movies. Yeah. Um, and so he kind of worked out different scenarios that work. Uh, like, uh, you know, it's the, uh, the innocent man being <laughs> falsely accused. That works really well, mm-hmm. um, especially if the police are chasing him. So you can't go to the police for help. So where do you go? Yeah, 100%. So it's that impossible kind of scenario that you really love to use quite often. Time to take a moment and uh, give some thanks to the sponsors, people that support the show. Um, So strap yourselves in. Let's do the sponsor reads. First up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you are in the marketplace for a brand new computer, if you're an editor, if you're trying to create your own suspenseful movies, uh, I suggest you buy yourself a PC. Yes, I said it, a PC. I have been cutting my films on PCs now for over seven years. All my suspenseful moments. And here's the thing. Cutting suspense, cutting um, you know, action sequences requires lightning fast response from your edit system like there's nothing worse when you hit the space bar and there's like a half second delay and you're trying to make sure that that cut uh, makes you feel a certain way i get so fucking irritated or i used to get irritated on older systems when it would lag because i couldn't figure out what the pace was drives you nuts right and so there was that constant struggle well i need to have a faster system what do I need in this system? Do I need more RAM? Is it a graphics card thing? Is it a processor thing? Whatever the fuck it is, I want to make sure that there is no lag from when I hit that space bar. That's what I want. Go, 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 go. Um, and uh, that's what really made me jump over to PC. I wanted a specific system that was custom made for the software I was using. Head on over to Puget Systems and check out what I got pumped about, which is you can build a computer based upon the software you need. Um, And the thing that I love about Puget is that they don't manufacture hardware. These guys just build computers. They do a really good job of benchmark testing and doing all the research on the new stuff that comes out in the marketplace. You would be surprised that uh, the new graphics card actually runs slower with some of the stuff. You never know. These guys benchmark test everything and they let you know what is the best deal, what's the best bang for your buck, And what they love to do is talk to their clients and their customers. So you can choose a system, you can choose a baseline package and then talk to them and say, hey, this is what I'm doing. Here are the rules that I'm breaking. Here's the stuff that I need. They love to work with folks. Uh, They have been a supporter of the show for ages. A lot of you listening have bought Puget Systems. You guys have been writing to me, telling about them. I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of the fact that we're all involved with Puget. Puget is such a great company, a family owned company. Uh, really great guys, fun dudes to hang out with. Um, and so I'm very excited that this partnership has worked out really well. Um, if you haven't checked them out yet, just click the link below the episode, head on over to their Instagram account. I think it's at Puget Systems um, and say, hey, Mike sent you. Just let them know that you're coming from in love with the process. You never know what kind of deal you get. You know what I mean? Um, so check it out. If you're in the market for a new computer, go on over to PugetSystems.com. Uh, supporting the show. 
is uh, good friends over at Black Magic Camera. You know, so many of us want to practice these techniques, want to learn how to build tension in a sequence. And that just takes practice and time. You need to get good footage. You need to get footage into your computer, your edit system, and see how it cuts together. How's that wide shot cut with a close-up? You need a camera at your disposal. And so for years, I was just using an old DSLR because I didn't need anything better. And recently, I was looking for a camera that would uh, create the images that I needed for broadcast, but also would uh, you know stand the test of time, be something that I would that I could have for a little while. I like the idea of having a camera that shot raw. I like the idea of being able to manipulate things in the timeline, which I love as far as color is concerned. Um, and uh, so I looked into Black Magic. Everybody was talking about it. I fell in love with them. I thought that uh, I've been using their uh, 6K Pro camera, and it's really great. I never thought that I would be shooting 6K, but uh, I'm telling you, I'm reframing, zooming in, making stuff work, and then even just compressing it, like down converting it down to 1080 or down to 4K, the images look so sharp and pristine. Check them out, see what I'm talking about. Uh, head on over to Blackmagic's website, the link is below in the description of the episode, and check out that amazing 6K Pro camera that they have. Um, and uh, they got a bunch of other really great stuff too. So if you're into color correction and digital grading, uh, they're resolved dudes, they have all that stuff. Head on over to Blackmagic. Super excited that they are a sponsor of our show. Also supporting the show are a new sponsor for us, uh, our friends over at ETC. Uh, and for those of you who don't know who ETC is, they are uh, the manufacturers of amazing light fixtures. They've been doing a lot of stuff for concerts and live venues, um, and they've been integrating their stuff into motion picture, motion picture industry and the video industry. Um, I love ETC uh, Source 4 lights. I've been using them for a long time now. Uh, they have them now with LED uh, units in them, which are amazing. I love a lot of the old ETC lights, which are tungsten-based. They're spotlights. I love those lights. I use them all the time on Gina's music videos. Whenever I need to just throw a spotlight on an actor's eyes or an actress's eyes, or maybe backlight them in a specific way, um, if you go back and look at uh, Gina's video uh, with B. Miller wearing the cowboy hat that we had posted so much, that spotlight was an ETC. Um, let me see what their reads are. Let me start with a new read here. Wireless technology. Studio lighting has advanced in more than just color quality and brightness. In an increasingly mobile world, it has been fascinating to see how manufacturers are bringing wireless technology to the fold. ETC has done just that with their FOS slash 4 studio fixture in line with the NFC and City Theatricals Multiverse technology. NFC makes it possible to send and receive fixture information uh, from the convenience of your phone or tablet, which is definitely a game changer for quick setup. Uh, so basically able to control all these features from your phone. Uh, and with the Multiverse Wireless DMX, you can control the fixtures from a console without the need to physically connect them. That's huge. I spent so much time just running cable. Uh, with the ability to broadcast 10 universes of DMXs from a single transmitter. That's pretty nuts. Multiverse technology can help you scale up the wireless lighting systems on a set. These features are consistent across the FOS-4 panel, the Fresnel, and the new Source 4 LED Series 3. Source 4, great. 
you can check all these out at ETC's studio fixtures have to offer by visiting etcconnect.com backslash in love with the process. Let me say that again, etcconnect.com backslash love the process. That's what it is. I'll put the link below in the episode. That's etcconnect.com love the process. Uh, also supporting the show are our good friends over at Quasar Science. Uh, talk about LED lighting technology. Quasar makes amazing LED tubes and fixtures. This is a company that was created by gaffers for lighting people. Like these are guys that ha- were on set, frustrated, working with lights, wishing that they were constructed a certain way, wishing they, they were more rugged. These guys got together, created Quasar Science. And I use their um, LED, rainbow LED uh, tubes all the time, all the time. They're bicolor tubes. They're great to have in your kit. They're really great to punch in uh, a little bit of light behind an actor, to pull a little light in the background, uh, to do awesome side light, edge light. If you chain them together, you can make a big old soft box. Uh, you see these all the time in music videos from lazy directors that are just putting uh, their LED light fixtures in the shots. You know, I think we're over that. Um, but uh, check, head on over to Quasar Science, check it out, see what I'm talking about. And like I said, the thing I love about that company is it's a company uh, made by gaffers or from gaffers for lighting people. So these guys know how to build units that are gonna stand up to the pounding they get on set. So head on over to Quasar Science. Uh, the website is below in the description and check them out. If you're a longtime listener of the show and you're asking yourself, Mike, how can we help? We know how expensive it is to do this podcast and how the hell do you do it because you don't charge per episode. How do you stay afloat? Well, simply put, it's because of the sponsors and our affiliates. One of the easiest ways that you can actually put cash directly into my pocket for this show is by signing up for one of the programs through our affiliates. And uh, one that we just started, one that we're excited about being a part of, is ExpressVPN. I'm sure you've heard of this before. A lot of you listening to the show are computer nerds, computer geeks, and a lot of folks want their privacy. Don't blame you with all the stuff that's going on, with all the tracking that goes on. Drives me insane as well. Why not sign up for ExpressVPN by using our link below? It's embedded within the description of this episode. Click on that link, sign up, and uh, you'll get cash going directly towards the show. Let me give you some of the key points that they have here. Uh, It's a huge network of VPN servers, 3,000 plus servers, and 160 locations spanning 94 countries. We're constantly adding more. Our team of engineers test performance Our team of engineers test performance from multiple endpoints every day continuously to optimize speeds. It works on every device and actually works with Netflix, which is interesting. A lot of people use ExpressVPN to be able to watch Netflix programming that isn't available in your country, which is such a fascinating sell point for this. Um, So if you're into privacy online, and essentially, for layman's terms, those of you who don't know what ExpressVPN does, it essentially... Remember those bits in the 90s action movies where someone was like, hold on, I'm going to reroute through like three different locations so that they can't find our spot? That's kind of what ExpressVPN does. <laughs> 
So if you want to have a private internet experience, sign up for ExpressVPN. And like I said, use our link. I'd read it, but it's some rando numbers. It's listed in the description of this episode. So if you're going to do it, sign up, support the show. I'm an advertising man, not a red herring. I've got a job, a secretary, a mother, two ex-wives, and several bartenders dependent upon me. And I don't intend to disappoint them all by getting myself slightly killed. You can't fight it, Carrie. Someone's out to get you, by violence, or by abduction. They'll even frame you for murder. So run for your life. Search for a man who doesn't exist. A secret nobody knows and start a love affair in an upper berth. Hello there. Tell me, why are you so good to me? Shall I climb up and tell you why? A train may be an old-fashioned way to make a getaway. But who wants to get away from an exquisite, inquisitive blonde? How do I know you aren't a murderer? You don't. Eva Marie Saint seems to enjoy Carrie's romantic performance. But her companion, James Mason, has other ideas. Ask him, Carrie. Apparently, the only performance that will satisfy you is when I play dead. In your very next role, you'll be quite convincing, I assure you. <coughs> it's one surprise after another. Adventurous Carrie, romanced by the kind of blonde that gets into a man's blood, even if she has to shoot her way in. And it, you mentioned this before, and it's 100% right. Like, it's the, the formula to good suspense is actually trying to figure out a way to get the majority of the audience to identify with that, that person and connect with that person and, and to be in the trouble and not be able to turn to the police. Like, everybody understands that. Like, what, where the fuck do you go? Like, what would I do? And as soon as your audience is asking that question, like, what would I do here? How would I? Oh, no, no, I would do this. Then they're engrossed at that point. And you're, you can actually take them on this crazy ride because they want to go on it. They want to. They want to know what the what this person, the reason that this person survives. How does this, this person survive? I don't know if I could. I think that's why he liked to use actors like Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart, because um, they had that quality of just kind of the average everyday person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, and they were in jobs that were kind of ordinary. Um, he, you know, Hitchcock didn't like to use uh, professional criminals or, you know, like police detectives as main characters because he felt like the audience couldn't relate to them because mm. they were just like above them somehow. Yeah, right. Which is so interesting too because then at the time if he's making movies about the average man but then you give a little distance to it and then, you know, they became sex symbols at that point. They became like these glamorized. I remember when I was growing up, my mom was always in love with Cary Grant. Oh, he was such an amazing actor and such a heartthrob and i'm like really he's just a regular guy (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's fascinating how we process that as the audience um so out of his catalog of stuff is there a movie to you that uh, impresses you the most as far as technique is concerned well um 
I would say rear window is definitely up there on the list. Uh, I always go through, um, you know, different favorites as time goes by, you know, because, you know, if you watch a movie again after a certain period of time, it might hit you a different way. Sure. Um, I really like rope. I think that stands the test of time. Um, in terms of his technique, it's fascinating because he's really using all of these shots that he normally uses. The only difference is that he's not cutting to the next shot. He's moving the camera to the next shot. So it's really all still the same. It's just that he's not cutting. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it's not like, uh, you know, just putting a camera live on something happening for an hour and a half. Right. 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 He's moving into um, his different positions, which is fascinating. Yeah. So he moves to the close up and then he moves to the wide shot and, you know, it's all there. It's just not, there's, he's just not cutting. And that adds that kind of feeling of live TV. And, I, and I'm constantly bringing up newer filmmakers so that the audience can identify. It's surprising how young our audience is. <laughs> um, but uh, you look at Spielberg too. Spielberg came from television. And so a lot of his like moving camera stuff and his, uh, his blocking was to be uh, conservative with time because TV, you don't really have that kind of time. But he would move in out of his close-ups. He would be able to move the cameras and get that coverage in a single um, and then the theory with rope was that it was supposed to be like one long continuous shot, right? He was just hiding because you would have to cut uh, to swap over film mags at that point. So he was just hiding that stuff, right? Yeah, like every 10 minutes. Yeah. He would have to hide the cut. Yeah, and there was actually three intentional cuts in that movie uh, for dramatic purposes. It's been so long since I've seen yeah. it. I have to watch that again. Oh, I just remember being completely enthralled with that movie as well. Okay, so rope. Rope is great. Obviously, that's like a very intense uh, visual technique of, of trying to make it seem like it's one continuous shot. Is there another film that speaks to you? Okay, well, North by Northwest is always good. Um, a lot of good comedy in that one. Um, <laughs> that's another example of using humor um, in uh, really dangerous situations. Um, you know, especially like the... Uh, the, the car uh, scene in the uh, kind of the opening sequence. Oh my God. Um, yeah. Where he's, uh, he's intoxicated, Cary Grant, um, and forced to drive down the highway at night. And that is a, a really dangerous situation. Um, but Hitchcock treats it as a joke. So you're laughing through the whole thing <laughs> because his, dr his drunkenness is funny. Um, <laughs> That's an interesting choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, and it works so well. Was that the was was it North by Northwest where uh, the lead walks? Was he in advertising? Was he in the advertising building in the opening of that? And he walks out into the New York street and goes into the yeah, crowd? yeah. He was in advertising. Yeah. Oh my god, I just remember that opening. I remember the blocking of all the extras and how he did this. Hitchcock did like this reversal shot where. Uh, that was Cary Grant, right? Was that Cary Grant in that yeah, one? Yeah. yeah. So he's mm -hmm. walking with his like assistant or something and they're talking and Hitchcock is just cramming all these people into this shot as they're, as they're moving through. It's so incredibly crowded and you, you watch that and you go, this doesn't feel real. It's not like he's on the actual streets of New York City doing this. Um, and so knowing how, what a tight fist he had over everything, the blocking is just strange and everybody's just sort of smashing in. Uh, it's such a fascinating, 
the opening of that movie is so engrossing. Like you watch it, and you go, "Fuck, I'm, I'm into this." You yeah, know? yeah. Oh, it's such a good one. That's a great one. Man, that's a great one. I gotta watch. See, I love talking about this stuff with you because I'm like, oh, okay, I gotta go back and watch more Hitchcock again. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, so, is there any other film that speaks to you off the top of your head? Um, well, Shadow of a Doubt was his favorite. Um, it's a it's a nice movie. That's one of those 1940s films that we uh, talked about. Um, yeah. A lot of humor in that one too, by the way, where uh, the side characters are debating the best way to commit murder. So um, <laughs> while the real murder is happening, you've got all these extras like making jokes about murder. So that irony is, is hilarious. Um, uh, the uh, Strangers on a Train. Oh, that's a great one. Yeah. Also really good. Mm-hmm. Love that movie. Um, this has been good. This is good talking about this stuff. Like what... I'm just trying to get, so basically what the, the purpose of episodes like this are for you guys that are listening is it, I want you to, to, to go back and watch the classics. And I talk about Hitchcock. We talk about Kurosawa. Kurosawa is another one. Um, if you go back and you watch these directors that are coming off of silent film and they're coming off of, uh, a medium that was just specifically visuals, um, and, and you can examine, if you feel something, if you go back and watch some of these earlier films and you got to put yourself in the right mindset, get rid of your, this is me talking to everybody, get rid of your fucking phone. If you're sitting down to watch a Hitchcock movie, you can't have your phone in the room with you at the same time because there are going to be moments where you're going to have trouble getting into it because it's such a different time period. People talk differently, people act differently, and you have to allow yourself to be fully immersed and there are movies like North by Northwest that it isn't that hard to do at all. Like in the first couple of shots, you're like, fuck yeah. But you go back and watch some of the, the earlier stuff. And even myself, I'll have moments where I go, all right, I have to be in the mood. I have to actually sit here and, and really concentrate. And, and as I get into it, you start to find all like these beautiful moments. Because you start to see like, wow, that was incredibly interesting. Why was that scene so fascinating? And if you rewind it and you watch the coverage, if you watch the way that the actors look at each other, you watch like the difference in, in gray tones between their outfits and the backgrounds. Um, there's so many, great, there's so much stuff to learn from these guys that I think if you took those same techniques and, and brought them into your style today, you would stand out among uh, a sea of just mediocrity as far as uh, coverage for sets are concerned, as far as television coverage, over the shoulder, over the shoulder, wide shot. Um, that really just don't have the same emotional context. Do you feel the same way or am I just an old dude complaining about shit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Oh, just check it. You mean, do I think you're an old, um, well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Um, but yes, um, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I don't know what to say there. You yeah. did so well. I, I couldn't say it any better. Well, you know what? Um, are there are there filmmakers today that you feel like really are um, influenced by Hitchcock? Do you watch any current stuff and you go, oh, obviously this guy watched The Birds, or obviously this happened? You know? Yeah, there's a few. Um, yeah, there's um, the Tin Cloverfield guy. What was his name? Trachtenberg. Yep. Dan yep. Trachtenberg. Yeah, he was definitely influenced. Yep. Um, 
um, there's a lot of people on television uh, that I see that are kind of pulling from those old techniques. Um, the HBO series um, Room 104, I think. Um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, a lot of good episodes in that. Um, television is where a lot of it is happening today. Mm-hmm. I think film, is, it, you know, as a feature film medium is kind of falling away right now. Like uh, people aren't watching it as much. And I think, I think so some of the greatest stories are not happening on feature films right now. I don't know if that's just my perception or if that's... Yeah, I mean, it's a controversial statement, but we'll go with it. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> it's a controversial statement. I mean, yeah, like I think that there's a lot more... There seems to be a lot more ad- adventurous... You, you, you can do a lot more story-wise on television these days than you could... Uh, traditionally with filmmaking because of the game of the, you know, having to make opening weekend, having to shoot enough trailer meat, having to make sure that you had enough explosions and it was cut fast and it was exciting um, to try to get that opening weekend, you know, box office up as high as it possibly could. But uh, television is fascinating to me. I think the issue that I have with what's going on with TV right now is I feel like it's almost the opposite effect where stuff is kind of strung out a little too much where you're like, mm, does this need to be 10 hours? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah. This, I totally agree with that. Yeah. This probably could have been three episodes. This could be a three right. hour piece. Yeah. Um, but uh, there is a lot of exciting stuff ha- happening, you know, with TV and, and I still think there's a lot of exciting stuff happening with movies. I mean, you even look at like, um, I was very surprised at the success that it had, and I'm happy that it did, but A Quiet Place did really fucking well. And A, a Quiet Place is all technique. Like, the the whole pitch for that is technique. You know, like, if you make a noise, if you make a sound, then uh, you die. Um, mm, yeah. And, and for the first time in I don't know how long, an audience was paying attention to that. The audience wasn't just like, give me more robots, you know, <laughs> give me more superheroes. Yeah. They were just like... Yeah. Stop saying. I remember sitting in the theater and, and someone coughing and someone going, shh. <laughs> it's like, oh, wow, okay, cool. You're really dialed into the technique here. Um, <laughs> but yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, it's cool stuff. It's, it's, it's fascinating that when you look at all the great stuff that we love, uh, it is all based on this language that these guys were developing. And, you know, the speed at which, like, Hitchcock was developing how to use sound and how, how to use camera and... And then he started to get into special effects stuff. He was doing a lot of rear projection stuff. And um, it's it's crazy the amount of stuff that he worked on developing, you know? You know, like there's one specific shot in the birds that took weeks to do. Like the it's the overhead shot of the birds uh, flying over the city as the, the oh, gas yeah. station is burning. That that shot, it's like 10 seconds. Yeah. Um, which, by the way, is a long shot today. <laughs> um, <laughs> that took weeks Yeah. to yeah. do the composite for that. Yeah. Oh, man. That movie's a great one. That's probably in my top five. That one's a fantastic one. And, and just yeah. just the sound effects, just the bird noises he was using were fucking horrific. Horrific. Yeah. And, you know, and that was a, it was a fake sound, too, by the way. Really? Yeah, it was, it was kind of a digitized, synthesized sound they used. I had no it idea. wasn't even real birds. Yeah, it was like kind of a pigeon sound, but not quite. <laughs> but you see, that was his music score in that movie. Yeah, it was those weird sounds because he didn't have music. 
so many great things in that film. That composition of the birds on the playground is amazing. Uh, just like that point in which it felt like they were throwing birds at Tippy Hedren. <laughs> yeah, which they really did. Yeah. <laughs> that was crazy. It's such a great yeah. fucking For like movie. a week they did that. They were throwing birds at her for a week. <laughs> and, uh, That's... You, you, you we're laughing, but that was quite traumatic for her, actually. I'm sure. Uh, I'm which sure she complained was. about for many years after that. I'm yeah. sure it was. Yeah, it's very Sam Raimi, you know, there's, there's yeah. stories of how Sam Raimi would just beat up Bruce Campbell all the time off camera, like hit him with sticks and, uh, <laughs> and I'm not laughing because I enjoy people being like traumatized. It's just funny to me being an older brother. I think is what yeah. Well, I mean, you know what, what, I wonder what the birds thought, you know, like, yeah. why are they throwing me at this woman all day? Like, it yeah. makes no sense. Uh, yeah, so many good things in that movie. That movie, uh, and I remember just, you know, that family locking themselves in that home, hiding from this natural event, um, which is completely relevant to us now, especially with COVID and everything. So like locking yourselves in, boarding up your house, and then just going in the kitchen and seeing that the cage, uh, the two parakeets in the cage, and how fucking horrifying <laughs> it was to look yeah. at these two docile birds. Yeah. Uh, oh, man. Fucking really great stuff. I appreciate you uh, chatting this out with us. And um, uh, Yeah, happy to do that. Um, my book has a lot more. You know, we've been talking about Hitchcock's films and stuff. In the book, I get into more techniques, so like filmmakers today, how they can put some of this into pro you know process and do it themselves, um, create mm -hmm. suspense, and uh, really use the psychology of suspense. And uh, What do you think are the three most important steps? And we might have started to cover this, but what are the three most yeah. important steps to creating suspense, do you think? Well, the three steps is uh, first you have a secret uh, that one of the characters knows, usually a pr the protagonist, uh, that's the person you're following. Sometimes it's the antagonist, uh, which can be a, a more fun. Um, but it's a secret that only that character knows and the audience knows as well. And the secret can be anything, you know, like a dead body. It could be, you know, like somebody's pregnant and they don't want that to be known by other people. Um, <laughs> anything, really. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second step um, is that once you establish that secret, you start to tease the audience about the secret getting out. Uh, so you build a series of close calls. Mm. Um, and these could be entire scenes. They could be, um, you can stretch these close calls out for the entire film, or you can resolve it uh, quite quickly. Um, there really is no limit to this. Mm. Um, but the trick is that the other characters uh, have no idea what's going on. Um, and they almost stumble on to the secret. <laughs> and it's that moment that you dance around um, that they almost catch on. Right. That's where you milk the suspense from. Right, right. A really easy example is you're sneaking into a building and you don't want to get caught. So if somebody like a security guard is uh, approaching, um, almost stumbles upon you, then uh, that's where the suspense is. But the trick is that they can't, the secret can't get out. Hmm. Um, it's a close call so that the audience is relieved that it didn't get out 
And uh, then at that point, they're addicted to uh, watching the movie uh, because it's, it's similar to um, a gambler that is um, at a casino and uh, he almost wins, but not quite. But he feels like he's on a winning streak now, so he keeps gambling. Right, right. Um, so just like the gambler gets addicted to uh, spinning, um, the audience gets addicted to watching the movie. So <laughs> the more times you do those close calls and the more fun it gets, um, the more enthralled that audience is. And yep. then eventually you have to relieve it. Yep. And that's step three, but you don't relieve it in the expected way. Um, it has to be a surprise out of left field, something you weren't expecting. Uh, it's like a magician with, uh, you know, a, a coin in one hand and you think it's in the left hand, but it's really in the right. And then he reveals that it's in the right. Um, it's that sleight of hand that you play with the audience, um, in the final twist. And it, when, yeah. when you think about each one of those steps, the creativity, the fun part for me as a director is that you really can break those things down to their their smallest moments and figure out how to use the techniques and use the language to really convey those in a new way, but also like a, a completely grounded, at least an emotionally connected way. Um, you know, and you had mentioned like hiding from, you know, a security guard as they come around the corner. And there's a bunch of, there's a hundred thousand different ways of, of covering that sequence. And is it a one shot? Are you cutting between stuff? Like, are you seeing who's coming around the corner? Are we staying with the person that's coming around the corner? There's so many different angles to take with it. Um, and when I start to plan these things out, I try to look for the thing that I find most, most interesting, the thing that sort of pulls me into sort of an inspirational hole with it, where it's just like, oh, this would be fucking fascinating if we stuck with this, or what if we have no sound here? What if we cut out all the sound and all you hear is the footsteps? Or what if it's, what if it is all score-based? We don't hear any of the surroundings. And what is it like if the main character can't hear? What is it like if the main character can't see or, or is afraid of heights and where, you know, has to stand outside a window while this is happening? Um, all those different elements are, are great. And then you end up going down this spiral of creativity, you know, you are afraid of heights. Well, how do I show that? How do I show vertigo? And is that a lens thing? Is that a camera movement thing? Is that a musical thing? Every time the actor feels like they want to fall, what does that mean? How do I make the audience feel that? Um, that's what's exciting about suspense and horror. Horror is a big part of that. Horror and suspense. Uh, that's what I love about making those movies. And there's a difference between tension and suspense too, which I think a lot of people uh, get kind of confused about that. Um, tension is a little bit different. Suspense is more of a, a broader question. So, you know, you're talking about um, somebody, somebody who's afraid of heights. Mm -hmm. um, well, let's say there's a, a, a tightrope walker uh, walking on a rope over a, a high space. The suspense is... Um, will he fall? But the tension is the moment by moment stepping across that rope. So the tension is more immediate. Right. Uh, it's right. more immediate feeling caused by the, the situation, but the suspense is the overall question. Is he going to fall? Right. If right. you, if you start looking at it as a suspense question, um, is he going to get caught? Are they going to find the body? Then that's how you can really kind of break it down and, and set it up for your audience. Hmm. Right. So they're feeling that question as the scene plays out. Right, right, right. And then oftentimes it is the tension that is filling in that 
filling in that space like actually making those moments more interesting is like how's sure, the, yeah. how's the tension building within them yeah. um yeah 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 interesting stuff man you know if you are like hitchcock i'm sure did this i'm sure he was writing specifically for the visual language right like is that's something that like a lot of writers or a lot of like writer directors should be thinking about is like, how am I writing this thing to translate visually? Yeah, for sure. So it's all those things we were talking about um, with visual language, um, creating the montage of ideas. Um, you know, that's, that's really what that's all about. I think getting away from explaining things in dialogue is, is the most important thing today. And the best thing about that is if you actually tell the story visually, it appeals to a more of a broad audience uh, across the world because language doesn't become a barrier. You don't have to look at subtitles to understand what's going on. It's right. all there on the screen. Right. Right. And half the time, like I would rather see someone f visually frustrated on screen than have them turn, stop in the middle of emotion and go, I'm frustrated. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's, there's so much of that. Where you're, you're watching stuff, you know, current and you're just like, okay, so these two people are running from zombies and they need to go into this convenience store and look for bandages. And then they just stop right in the middle of it and go, I'm feeling frustrated. And you're just like, I thought you were looking for bandages. <laughs> if I was the other character, I'd go, shut the fuck up and look for bandages. <laughs> but you can tell that. You can tell how frustrated that character is by how they look for things and how they move through the space and how they interact with that other person. And do they look at them in their eyes and do they not? Like, what's their body language like? Like, that, that stuff's fascinating to watch. And then I could start to put those things together as an audience, which makes me more engrossed with the piece. And also focusing on objects as well, um, that the actors manipulate. Mm. Um, so like, you know, keys that are, you know, unlocked doors and things like that. And, uh, which character has the key, that sort of thing. Mm. Those things that are actually on the screen that the audience can perceive and track throughout the film. Um, that is also a way to make it visual as well. It is this weird balance, right? Because you feel like as a director like Hitchcock was, where he's got everything completely controlled and he is is manipulating as many things as possible that, that are projected on that wall when you're in that space and the stuff that you hear when you're in that theater. But what he can't ultimately, he can try to, but what he can't ultimately adjust is exactly what it is that you're thinking about when you watch that movie. And he's, he's trying his best with sleight of hand to make you think about what he needs you to think about and to bring you down in this, this avenue. And so I think oftentimes the successful films to me are the ones that aren't very heavy handed and that aren't like, I need you to, this is how I'm feeling and this is what you should feel right now. And they just do a really good job sort of sculpting the path, like mowing that lawn so that you just walk right down into that space and you go, well, I think what he's trying to do is this. And, oh, it's interesting. He was doing, and you're putting the pieces together as a viewer. You find yourself more engrossed. You find yourself more personally connected to this film. And actually, there's a sense of accomplishment when you watch a movie that is, I don't want to say more open-ended, but just not as heavy-handed. That's interesting. Because I would say that Hitchcock was quite heavy-handed. Yeah. And uh, he knew that path that he wanted the audience to follow uh, specifically. And he was controlling that path more than anyone for sure. Um, probably to date. Um, and they've, they've actually done studies on this that, um, um, they hooked people up to, um, uh, like a brain scan mm -hmm. 
in a lab. And uh, so <laughs> they actually, they compared the difference between like brain scans between people watching a clip from Hitchcock <laughs> and watching something else. Mm-hmm. And the people that watched Hitchcock actually had a lot more brain activity. Weird. Really? So yeah, it was definitely, he, he definitely knew how to manipulate. It's so interesting. I wonder what his storyboarding process was like. Do you know much about it? So like why he chose certain things or yeah, or, how he chose certain things? Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious what it was like. Like, did he do multiple rounds of storyboards for stuff or was it like, this is my thought and sort of sat down with an artist and went, this is exactly what we need. And was it, was it always him doing, is he like a Ridley Scott where Ridley will, will ride in the back of the car on the way to work and, and board out this movie himself? Or was he working with artists that were interpreting what he was saying and then creating their own version of it? I've seen a lot of storyboards that he actually sketched out himself. Yep. Because they're very simple and it wouldn't have been someone else that, that did it. Um, but I, I, I also have seen storyboards that an artist rendered as well. Mm-hmm. And I almost wonder, because I haven't really researched this area, but I wondered at one point if these storyboards that we see today were created after the fact. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Um, so I'm not sure how much validity there is yeah. to what we see today. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a fascinating topic. I do know that he planned everything else. He planned all of that in advance. Um, he had that specific shot sequence in mind that he wanted to tell the story and he didn't want the editing to influence it like we talked about before. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's also speculation that his wife was involved more than <laughs> we we know, that yeah. maybe she was storyboarding. Yeah, so. yeah, because she was, she was his uh, editor for a while too, right? She was cutting his movies? She was doing a lot of things um, that we don't know about. Because mm-hmm. uh, back in those days, uh, women didn't, you know, take the credit quite as much, mm-hmm. um, especially married couples. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's possible that she, I mean, we know that she had a lot of influence on the writing mm. of his scripts and the approval of his scripts. Mm. Uh, but she was, she was an editor and she worked in film in the twenties, just like he did. Yeah. Um, and that's where they met actually is uh, working together on silent films. So she became a, a creative partner uh, quite early on. The question is, how much did she do? I don't think anybody knows that. Yeah, because when you look at these, you look at these legends, right? You look at these directors and, and you know, over time, you get a few generations out and they're geniuses and I don't know how it happened, but they just, you know, were born on this planet with the idea of like how to use a 50 millimeter lens, how to use 20 millimeter lens. And you sit there and when you start to hear these stories and you forget that they're humans that are just figuring out how to use tools. They're humans figuring out how to, you know, convey emotions that they've experienced in their life. And so, you know, I was asking about the storyboarding process because when you are going to hook someone's brain up to a thing and they're responding that much to these visuals. I wonder, uh, it would be so hard to do that kind of study where like at what point did that frame become that responsive? Was it like multiple passes at storyboard art where he's just like, ah, this is not right. The, the, the character should be more centered and 
you know, there should be more background here. And then the, you know, maybe if her dress was the complementary color or contrasting color of this, then people would respond to that more. And it's all these like little details that uh, must make that frame as receptive to us. And I think also he just knew it was instinct. Yeah. Interesting. He just knew uh, because, you know, it's also speculated that he had autism. So a very visual thinker. Mm. Uh, so he just saw it in a different way. One thing that I find fascinating about looking at some of his storyboards, uh, I think it was from Lifeboat that I'm talking about specifically. Okay. Um, <laughs> the two options, okay, is a close-up and another close-up that's a little bit further away, but not really. So what's the difference between those two shots? <laughs> Why is he shooting two different types of close-up? One is just a little bit further away. So there's obviously some instinct that he knew about that was so specific that would just blow our minds if we we ever figured it out. If we were plugged into the Hitchcock mindset. Yeah. It's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, there has to be something because he stands out among, you know, a sea of directors, especially from that time period. And, you know, the skeptic in me often is like, well, is it because of the personality that was Hitchcock? Is it because of the television show? Is it because of the, you know, Hitchcock presents and the silhouette does the marketing? Was it the marketing that gave him the advantage over some of the other filmmakers that were incredibly talented? But you go back and you look at his work and you're, you know, still engrossed by it. And you're like, well, there's something here, man. Like he, he knew what he was doing. And if he is that controlling and he was that controlling with his work and he didn't allow for improv, then he's, and he's only shooting a, a certain amount of coverage for the edit, then he'd be hanging himself if he didn't know what he was doing, you know? Yeah. It's yeah, that's true. It is fascinating when you think about it. Um, well, all this stuff is great. Uh, I'm so happy to have you on the show, Jeff. And um, for those of you uh, listening, definitely check out the book, uh, Suspense with the Camera, The Filmmaker's Guide to Hitchcock's Techniques. Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of goodies in there if you're looking to... Uh, try to pull the veil and understand a bit more about what these techniques do and how they uh, can cause an audience to feel certain ways. Um, it's always a good idea to continue to build your toolbox, put all these things in there. So when you're confronted with a scene or you're confronted with an idea, you can go, what would Hitchcock do here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but thanks, Jeff. Thanks for being on the show, my man. Oh, thanks for having me. And uh, is there anything else you want to plug besides the book? Uh, well, there's a lot of free videos, uh, free documentaries about Hitchcock's works that I have online. Uh, be sure to check those out. There's the whole uh, Hitch 20 docu-series, which mm -hmm. goes through each of the TV episodes that he directed. Super cool. And so we we get together with other filmmakers and, and they kind of react to watching uh, these episodes and kind of give their own uh, insights on to what they saw. And so it's a it's a documentary that's for filmmakers. And then there's the, uh, the longer documentary I did about Hitchcock's techniques, um, which I just finished earlier this year. So definitely check that out. Oh, cool. What's, which, which one's that? It's called uh, Film Techniques of Alfred Hitchcock. Cool, man. I'm, I'm definitely going to check that one out. Yeah. And uh, it's free on YouTube. So hell you yeah. You can watch that anytime. Yeah. Hell yeah, man. Hell yeah. We'll put links below uh, in the description. And um, before we let you go, like... I would say, is there anything you want to say to a lot of the younger directors out there after doing this studying and, and, and uh, falling in love with the visual language? Like, 
why should they go back and watch Hitchcock's movies? Uh, because he knew what he was doing. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> there it is. Yeah. I love it. I love it, Jeff. Thanks for being on the show, dude. Sure. Today's episode uh, with Jeffrey, and uh, hope you guys liked it. I hope you guys um, really thought about uh, some Hitchcock stuff. I hope you guys are inspired to go back and watch some really great Hitchcock movies. Let me give you my list of films that I really love. Um, The Birds, great movie, very suspenseful film, um, really fun special effects. A lot of current event stuff is, is... being played with there whether you're talking about being locked in the house because of covid uh, the crazy stuff that people do really great movie um marnie is another really great one psycho everybody loves that movie uh north by northwest stunning film stunning film it looks gorgeous the locations are amazing uh the set pieces are phenomenal uh definitely a watch rear window without a doubt is such a fun movie to watch so many great techniques involved that you have a main character that is trapped in a wheelchair that is looking through binoculars it's a great study in perspective great study in sound design great study in set design uh that one's amazing and uh like jeff was saying rope is such a great uh examination in the uh uncut sort of one shot recreation and watching that film why is it so interesting Spielberg, uh, not Spielberg, fucking uh, Hitchcock moves in and out of his shots, um, which is really fun to see. Um, really great movie. So many. His list is so long. I'm actually going to go back and watch a lot of his films um, from the 40s and, and earlier. Uh, I remember watching 39 Steps and loving it. Sabotage is a great one. Lady Vanishes is a really great one. Suspicion is a great one. Um, he is definitely, when people call him the master, and I know we hear this too much, but he is definitely the master of suspense. Um, so I hope you guys get to go and check that stuff out. I hope you're inspired enough to go watch these movies. You know, break away from that Netflix queue for a little bit and go back and watch the films that have inspired everybody else. And why do it? I know everybody that's listening to the show is either movie fans or most of you are making films. If you want a leg up, you want an advantage over the the people that you're coming up with the folks that don't have the patience to go back and watch these films i'm telling you you're gonna go and you're gonna learn something and uh i don't know how many of you ask all the time like how do you develop uh, your own personal style how do you develop uh the feeling that your films are gonna have uh go back and be inspired by the greats Uh, because hitchcock inspired all the filmmakers that we grew up loving in my generation and those folks inspired the filmmakers that the youngest generation is growing up and watching right now and it all comes from the source it's crazy to me that movies have only been around for uh just about a couple hundred years it's not even still very young it's still very young medium pretty nuts man so go back and check them out and uh i want to thank everybody listening to the show i want to thank everybody for supporting the show and, uh, you know, checking me out on Instagram at Mike Petchy, checking out the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. And if you enjoyed this episode and you want to get into it, you want to get a little deeper, you want to 
curate your listening experience. Um, you can head over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and there you can choose episodes based upon subject material. So if you want to check out uh, what our directors have to say, I have a whole section based on directors. I have cinematographers, all sorts of stuff. So head on over there. And if you're listening to the show, uh, whatever sort of streaming service you're using, uh, the place to leave reviews is on Apple Podcast. Unfortunately, you can't leave reviews on Spotify. You can't leave reviews on a lot of these other outlets. Apple Podcast is where to go. And you don't have to listen to the show on Apple Podcast if you don't want to. But if you want to leave reviews that help put this higher in the algorithm on any of these platforms, you leave reviews on Apple Podcasts and that'll help us out. That's it, man. I'm not going to gab too much. Hope you guys liked this episode. Lots more on the way. Um, And as always, thanks for listening. And I will see you next Tuesday.